Anyway, since we seem to be out of witnesses, I thought I'd drink a little. I'm good. I'm good. Um, for our uh, our multitudes of uh, viewers, we know we missed last week. Um, you know, uh, kind of a difficult week. Marcy and I lost a cat, which was really sad. Still sad. And Marcy lost her brother, which is also very sad. Um, so we've dealt with that, and uh, we're back in the saddle and ready to roll. And so here we are. Here we are. And as we speak, um, your wife is sort of almost or approaching labor. Is that right? There's no active labor yet, but uh, things are moving along nicely, and it'll be soon. Could be any moment. Could be any moment. So if you see Tyler jump up, should keep then my... I'll finish things off. Yeah, I should keep my phone on me. I don't even know this... where it went. Because but... that's the kind of trooper I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, um, oh, I have a drink today. What are you drinking? I'm drinking an Aperol Spritz. Oh, and what's in that? Aperol, which is an aperitif uh, from Italy. I think it's from Italy. And uh, Prosecco and soda water. Very good. And uh, it's got kind of a little bit of a bitter taste, but it's good. Um, Marcy and I went to Rome several years ago and saw everybody's drinking these and you went still in, drink them. When in Rome. <laughs> or when at home. Uh, so, I've I've got a whiskey sour today. Lovely. That I mixed up. I enjoy a good whiskey sour. It's hot out, it's kind of a nice refreshing thing. Like yeah. spritz. And I've had a hundred straight lock cocktails. Again, the recipe's still on our website. But today I felt like a spritz because it was kind of a nice day out. So I'm going to go with some sure. kind of summary. Um, so today uh, we're going to talk about why are lawyers so goddamned expensive um, in a way that I hope is uh, honest and straight, hence the name of our uh, podcast. Because I think sometimes clients, they know it's expensive, but it doesn't quite make sense to them. Just why is it so expensive? And so I thought it might be really helpful for us to have some frank discussion. What goes into making a legal bill? Um, so maybe for, I'll start out, we talked a little bit about this earlier and I said, well, uh, there's some obvious sort of input costs that we have to grapple with as, uh, as lawyers um, that maybe people don't fully understand. Or they do, but they don't really think about it. So uh, just to be a lawyer, you generally are looking at seven years of education, usually an undergrad degree of four years and three years in law school somewhere. Um, I managed to get into law school with three years, just short of three years of undergrad, but that's a little bit unusual. Um, and so estimates just for the law school portion for three years, if you include loss of income, uh, occasion because you're in school not working you're looking at somewhere between 110 and 200 thousand uh, dollars investment just for law school now how do you impute a, a loss of income what do you like how much are you thinking 
because here's the thing, right? A lot of people who get into law school probably would have been, uh, not necessarily, but probably would have been successful in other fields. So when you do loss of income, if you're thinking you're losing 45 or 50,000 a year, you might be a little underestimating it. Uh, these are people who might have been really successful in other industries too. Yeah, and, anyway. and, and this is a little bit conservative, but it's mm -hmm. saying, you know, even if I was working at Burger King, making $30,000 a year full time, um, I can't really work full time in law school. Right. Uh, a fair number of people work part time. My wife worked part time. I didn't. Um, but there is loss of income because you're in a university all day and doing some work outside of school. And then obviously there's tuition, which is not, I think Toronto now is approaching $50,000 a year just for tuition. So there's $150,000 at University of Toronto just for the degree itself without looking yeah. at the costs of attending university and everything else. Now, then you've got your undergrad. Well, let's say that's another 200,000. So, so before you open your door, you've got a $400,000 investment that unfortunately you expect your clients to repay you. Otherwise, why would you go to law school? Nobody or virtually nobody in law school is a philanthropist that plans on making that investment and not having it pay itself back on some basis. So you've got that. So that's your starting point. Now beyond that, okay, so now you're a lawyer, you've done your articles and got paid a pittance, according to you, when you were my student. Um, so now you're a lawyer. Well, the Law Society says to us, $6,000 a year, more or less, just to keep your ticket between insurance and Law Society dues. Okay, well, that's 500 bucks a month on top of the return on investment I'm needing to recoup. Um, and most of us carry what's called excess liability insurance because your base insurance only covers up to a million dollars and because of the stuff we do frequently results in, in risk to our clients well in excess of a million dollars, we're gonna carry additional insurance. So you're looking at maybe $7,000 a year just to be entitled to be a lawyer. Now you gotta turn the lights on and you're gonna have some staff. Legal assistants are gonna run you somewhere between 50 and $100,000 a year, roughly. Um, rent, three lawyers, Four or five thousand dollars a month. Um, software uh, for your typical stuff, but also our accounting. Just the accounting alone for our office, five hundred dollars a month per month. Six thousand dollars a year for our accounting that the law society obligates us to have. Um, and then you got the other software. You've got the Microsoft crap, and you've got um, various softwares that facilitate what we do: divorce mate, those sorts of things. Um, and then we have continuing legal education. Particularly in a place like Lethbridge, you're gonna generally be required to go somewhere to upgrade your skills because uh, I practice going on 35 years. Um, if I didn't do any continuing legal education, I'd probably be grossly incompetent. Um, and so you're gonna pay for that um, every year, probably two or three courses anyway. And so you're going to take time out of your office and you're not billing anybody anything. Plus you're going to pay in our case to travel usually to Calgary, sometimes to Chicago. Yeah. To Chicago last year. year. Um, 4,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Boston. I bought this. <laughs> I'm continuing legal education trip. Um, and even if that's tax deductible, it's still, you know, it's, it's a chunk of money. So, so it, it is, 
not at all unusual for a lawyer to need to bill $10,000 a month just to keep the doors open before he takes a dime in oh, income yeah. for himself. Yeah. 10,000 bucks a month. <clears throat> now, if you then add on an expectation of return on investment um, that we were talking about, uh, it's pretty hard to justify being a lawyer, in my opinion, if you're not gonna make at least $100,000 a year, right? It's not an easy job. So somehow you're kind of looking at wanting to generate something like $20,000 a month to have a modest practice that would pay you something akin to uh, a high school teacher in Alberta. Yeah. yeah. Is that fair? That is a very accurate description. That is right. Yeah. So, you know, and so <laughs> basically we've got a certain number of clients that we do work for because to do quality work, you can't just take in a million clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're looking at your work having to generate about $20,000 a month uh, during the course of that month. Um, so that's expensive, just in principle. Yeah. And so I think that's what we start with, is clients have to understand that while it seems like when you're billing three or four or $500 an hour in my case, um, what am I paying for? Well, you're paying for a whole lot of stuff. Um, partly you're paying our salary, but partly you're paying for these other things that we've talked about. Now, that being said, um, one of the things I'm fond of telling my clients is, as your practice gets better, um, there's only so many hours in a day. And so if I can resolve a client's issue in 10 hours, um, I've got enough other clients to keep me busy, but I'm really not gonna lose money because I didn't take 100 hours, right? Because in a given day, I'm gonna work eight hours or whatever. Um, well, it could be on that file from start to finish, or it could be on that file for the next five days. So, so then the question on an individual client's basis beyond this is, well, why do some clients pay way more money than other clients to get resolution? Uh, and I think that is the thing that is a mystery to most people and really something we could talk about a little bit more. So what are your thoughts? You've been a lawyer for a while now. Um, when you look at bills for your clients or clients have questions about bills, why is it so expensive? Beyond our, our what we've talked about, our upfront costs and our overhead costs, for the individual client, why was his bill so high or her bill so high? So if I've, got, yeah, if I've got clients that are getting particularly high bills, um, I'll, I'll address that with them right off the bat and say, look, you're incurring expenses faster than what my other clients would typically incur expenses at. And I give them some suggestions on what to do to keep it down. My suggestions are things like email me once or twice a week. Uh, think about what you want to email me. Consider it before you're shooting a whole bunch of emails back to me because by the time I review, you know, respond to it, save it, uh, you know, uh, add something in my file that I've done and or that I need to do, uh, you know, we bill for that. And so if you send me one email a week or two emails a week, I can do that in a way more effective way and save you a lot of money. So I think that constant communication where there's uncertainty and the client's scared and they've got, they don't know how to manage their expectations. That's a big one that I run into a lot. So, so I've thought about this and we talked about this a little bit. Hmm. I look at, I guess what I would call client 
variability in terms of the cost of service for, for our individual clients. And when I look at what are the things that drive costs in an unreasonable way or in a way that is difficult for the client to understand, and I break that down personally into client issues, things the client does or doesn't do, mm-hmm. lawyer issues, things that I or people like me and you do, and uh, institutional issues, the courts, the administration of justice, yeah. those issues. And all those things are slightly independent of each other and they, they interrelate. Um, but, you know, I've been dealing with access to justice for quite a while. And so I look at these things and I say, well, is there a way that we could reduce expenses for a person seeing a lawyer? And every one of those three major categories, I think, could use some improvement. Would you agree in your experience? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so you kind of touched on one of the issues is clarity uh, or client expectation about communications. Maybe what are your other thoughts about, you know, and I don't really want to dump on clients, but if a client wants to know, is there something I can do to keep my legal bill down? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. So take my advice and do what I say and do it the first time and don't, don't make me hound you about getting your disclosure or giving me instruction. Do those things. So respond to me and respond to me promptly, but also you kind of need to manage your feelings a little bit. You got to think you're, your think your emails through or think your corresponds through make sure you're giving succinct replies answering everything uh but also also not every time tons of emails back and forth because you feel upset there, there's better ways to manage that than pay me to send you emails a lot so yeah that's that's my biggest those are my suggestions to the clients anyways yeah and i think that the client understands you know they they know intuitively because we have fee agreements with our clients so we tend to bill for the most part on an hourly basis. Um, and, and so intellectually they know, okay, uh, your time is money. But I think it, you've touched on, I think it's a good point. Emotionally, they maybe don't think about it all the time and then that turns into a bigger legal bill. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the things you touch on is, is disclosure. And that's one of my experiences too. When you send a letter to the client with a list of 15 things that they need to get you and they give you three or four at a time mm-hmm. and then you're phoning them you're emailing them or you're talking to your staff about gathering more stuff up or they send you the tax return with missing pages so you're reviewing everything and realizing things aren't there yeah. i think it's important for them to understand there is a cost to inefficient production on their part and they can yeah. reduce costs by improving that. And, and I'm pretty direct with my clients. The one thing I say to clients quite often is when you're dealing with your lawyer, imagine you're in a really expensive cab, yeah. right? And I think if they visualize the idea of uh, when you get in a cab, I think most people are pretty good about get me from A to B. And you're not real inclined to say, you know what? I like the drive around the outside of the city because it's really picturesque. Why don't you drive over there and then halfway there, they're like, I feel like ice cream. Let's go get an ice cream. You know what I mean? So I don't yeah. want to trivialize the significance of, of litigation, but I think clients need to be very cognizant that every time there's a detour on their file on some basis, it's costing money. Yeah. I don't think they think about that, particularly in family law. Uh, they let their emotions drive the bus. Yeah. Is that your experience? Yeah, definitely. Right. And especially with parenting issues, not, not uh, exclusively, but especially with 
right? Where you get upset about an interaction you have with the other parent or something the kid said or whatever. And so things are going along, you're settling issue by issue, or you're figuring out how you're gonna settle it or get things determined. And then all of a sudden, well, hold on, stop everything because there was this thing that come up and now we gotta go and send a letter back and forth and then make a threat to maybe go to court or get a counselor involved or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that is expensive. Now, if you wanna do it, hey, that's what we're here for. Uh, but that's a good way to think of it. Yeah, there's a little detour in that thing. Yeah, I remember a file years ago now, and I was acting for a woman. Her husband was a, a vice president of a major oil company in Calgary. Significant money. But the hilarious thing was at the end of the file, the parties couldn't decide how to divide their, their photographs for their children. Um, and I remember the other lawyer, senior counsel in Calgary, a major law firm. Um, we actually ended up sitting down and going through photographs on the floor at, you know, four or $500 an hour um, should have been something the clients could have dealt with. But I get they, that's an important issue to people, but. But by that point, you know, the ability for them to, uh, to do that from their perspective was just non-existent, but cost, right? Yeah. And frankly, I told my client, this is, this is not a worthwhile expenditure of your legal fees and she didn't want to deal with it. And that was what was going to happen. So, so that kind of thing yeah. where the emotions prevent clients from being able to communicate with each other effectively, able to resolve issues that are not necessarily major issues yeah. can be really expensive at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is and the analogy I've often used too is uh, every client's unique um, and every problem is different and requires us to tailor uh, a response to their issue. So it's not like buying shoes at Walmart or even Nike. Yeah. Um, we are making shoes specifically for our clients' feet on every single file. Yeah. So imagine if your shoes are all handmade, what that's gonna cost you. And this is kind of what lawyers do. We call it bespoke service perhaps. It's right. you're getting a custom made suit for your legal problem each and every time. There's very few things we can do to commoditize or to uniformly uh, react to a client's issue and that drives expense a little bit too. So why is that? Well, let me talk about it, I guess. Sure. I mean, the reason we can't do that is, um, and we talked about this in one of our earlier podcasts, I think, uh, there's a standard that we have to meet, right? And we have to be, we have to meet that standard. We have to do a good job of what we do. And so to try and make a one, one solution fits all kind of product isn't easy because everything is unique and our liability is on the line but of course the client's interests are, are on the line um, and so maybe there is some room where we could look at you know like it, like they do in other places in the states uh, they do some wills that are sort of generic one size fits all or they'll do uh, you know real estate transactions uh, that aren't done through lawyers in, in some US states and things like that and so maybe there is room for that in the future maybe there is some way we could expand and provide a service that isn't a tailor-made suit for every yeah. scenario especially when people can't afford it yeah. because that's it's unfortunate that's and expensive. I think we could do more of that but I think there is uh, without question there is mm -hmm. what I would call litigation chill in being more uh, efficient with mm -hmm. the delivery of legal service because it is much less risk to over deliver service to a client for the lawyer than yes. to under deliver. 
That's exactly right. And what I've said sometimes in the past is the cost of perfection is a big driver of access to justice problems because not everyone can afford perfection. Yeah, that's right? exactly right. Um, I mean, you, you think of everything we do in our lives, um, you know, you want a new bicycle. Well, some people are just kind of riding around their neighborhood and they're happy as clams to get the free spirit bike from Sears or Canadian Tire or whatever. Um, and that's just fine for them. And other people are going to spend five or six thousand dollars on a on a Cannondale or a Trek road bike because they need a level of perfection uh, for what they want. And unfortunately, for lawyers, um, we could provide service on a more limited basis without question. I could pretty much, after thirty four years, I could almost wing a trial based on a one or two hour interview with the client and be credible in a courtroom. Yeah. And I, if things didn't go well, I would get sued, guaranteed. And, you know, so, yeah. so even if the client says, look, I don't, I don't want, you know, the, the A-level service. I just want you to do sort of the bargain service. We don't really have that choice necessarily no, because the right. courts have told us and our law society tells us um, you need to do your best each and every time out. Yeah. And the problem with your best is, well, what does that mean? On any given file, even on issues that I deal with every day, spousal support. Yeah. How many new cases have come out in the last month on spousal support? Probably a hundred. Yeah. Just in a month. That's and so if cool. I'm going to do a credible review of any changes in spousal support law, you got to take a few hours. Now I have a pretty good idea what spousal support principles apply today. Naturally, yeah. Um, but uh, we got to do that. We got to, in theory, provide a level service whether the client wants it or not. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, we do. That's our liability on the line. That's what we're told we have to do. And if you give something less, even at the client's request right now they have a remedy against us that we should have done more. Yeah. So there isn't, there isn't a way around providing, providing that right now. Yeah. You're right about that. So that gets into, okay, we got client driven cost issues. We talked about that. Yeah. Clients let their emotions get beyond them. Mm -hmm. So we're doing more work than maybe we need to do. Clients aren't responding uh, fully or completely to our request for assistance because they're a partner on their file. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting into system issues. Yeah. Things that are imposed upon us, whether the client or the lawyer wants it, uh, the system, I guess, says, no, you, there's an expectation of you doing things a certain way, um, whether the client instructs you or not. Right. Um, now, what other system issues, in your experience, are there other system issues? And, and maybe we'll talk about what you might feel is maybe unreasonable system issues things that we could do without or things that we could improve that frustrate you in your tenure as a lawyer. Do you have frustrations with any system issues? Yeah, we've got some system issues. So, you know, filing stuff with the courthouse, things that we're expected to file uh, uh, change a lot. And that can be frustrating for a lawyer. 
and uh, it can be frustrating for the court staff as well. And a lot of the time there's communication issues between the lawyers and the court staff, uh, or there's, or not everyone's up to date. And so that can be pretty frustrating, right? Um, you know, there's uh, a notice to the profession saying, look, before you demand someone else's disclosure, you better have filed your own. And court staff are supposed to at least see that something was filed. Uh, but more often than not, I'm getting demands for disclosure from other lawyers when they haven't filed anything and haven't even provided me anything. Uh, so, you know, so there's a system issue right there, right? That they were supposed to do something, most people aren't doing it, and the system itself that's supposed to keep that up and running isn't, isn't operating at their capacity. And I get that, you know, that's not easy for them either. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's always a big issue for sure. Uh, yeah, court forms changing is kind of problematic. Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think sometimes the courts or the administration feel like they're creating more clarity and, and in some respects they sort of are. Mm -hmm. Um, but in other ways, um, they're creating more work and that creates more cost. So you've brought up this disclosure issue, you know, now back in the day, um, the lawyer has a pretty good handle on basic income questions, depending on what they're dealing with on the file. Mm -hmm. So at a minimum, you say, look, I need to see some tax returns. Some guy's an employee or some woman's an employee. Uh, their tax return is going to be pretty indicative of what their income is. Yeah. Um, so you might say, well, can I see your tax return and maybe bank statements for the last six months? It'll give me an idea of whether things survive a smell test, whether further inquiry is required at this stage. Yeah. You just want an interim support order. But what we do now is your expected disclosure uh, requires you to provide specific answers and disclosures. And it's three years tax returns, three years notices of assessment, um, three years pay statements, or three months pay statements, um, uh, financial statements for your business for three years, uh, a statement showing breakdown of salaries, wages, management fees paid to or anyone you don't deal with at arm's length. Um, Details of any trust, details of any income from government assistance. I mean, it's a, it's a two-page schedule of documents that we require, um, and we have to answer those. You can't just say to your client, well, I think all you really need is your tax return, and we'll send that over to the other lawyer, and if they want more, they'll let us know. No, it's out of the gate. I want child support, right? So I have a woman in my office, and I need to say to her, yeah, you need to give me um, what really amounts typically to two to three inches of paper yep. so that I can then ask your husband for his last year's tax return. Yeah. Right? And so for me to create that disclosure package, put it together, tab it now with bookmarks on PDF now, um, to do that requires a significant result uh, amount of time and effort for me and my staff and then when the client doesn't have all this stuff um, it then takes me more time to deal with well I don't have my tax return from two years ago 
well, then you're going to have to write to the federal government and ask them for a copy of your tax summary for 2017. Well, how do I do that? Well, here's a link to a website, and this is, you know, um, all this costs money. All this yeah. takes time. And frankly, we don't need it. And the court doesn't need it. And I don't even think the court looks at it 90% of the time, but we got to get it because maybe the one time in a hundred, there's something in there that might show you something that you might want to look at. And most competent lawyers are going to know whether they need to ask for more stuff or not. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, the administration of justice has decided that all this stuff is what's needed. And they haven't, in my opinion, considered what it costs to create that disclosure and not every file needs it frankly. and not only do we have to gather it and then share it and review our clients and review the other sides we also have to yeah, create a physical one and file it at the courthouse yeah. and that that's expensive yeah yeah absolutely yeah. like i said yeah. two or three inches of paper and this is one example of one thing we have to file right yeah. so yeah you know, and, like it used to be, you know, and one of these old guys, oh, back in my day, you know, but it used to be, you could just file just about anything you want. You file a thing called notice of motion, which I know makes you laugh uh, gloriously <laughs> because now they're applications because they had to change the name from a notice of motion to an application and they had to change the name from discovery to questioning. Like it's bullshit like this that makes me laugh. You know, as we're trying to fix justice, we get caught up in let's improve the nomenclature for no particularly good reason, but anyway. But it used to be you'd file a motion and, and the rules basically said, I had an application for blank. You'd fill it in with whatever gobbledygook you wanted and it would be up to the lawyers in the court to decide whether or not the gobbledygook you were requesting was valid or you're entitled to it. But for the most part, we got by and those documents were much simpler to prepare and file and it worked. Um, now, okay, you know, you got this form, that form, this form, that form. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think it's made things better. It's made things more technical. Um, and quite often, this is my big bug, and I'm, I'm not going to make friends with the judiciary, uh -oh. to make their job easier, not to improve the quality of justice for our clients, not to reduce the cost to the client. And, and the one I just read, we're filing e-documents now. Yeah. Right, you, you got this notice? Yeah. You're gonna e-file a document, right? And, and this is hilarious. I'm, I'm gonna rant about this just for a second because I acted for a self-rep that was held in contempt, had his pleading struck because he sent a PDF document to the other lawyer instead of paper. You remember that? I think I was working with you then. Yeah, so the yeah, Court of Appeal of Alberta had a big set to with judge in, in, in Edmonton about that. What does it say? These documents are required to be PDF documents. This is now the law in the province of Alberta. This client was in contempt because he sent PDFs. How long ago? Let's be clear. Three years ago. Right. Now this is required, but it's not enough that you convert your document to a PDF, which is not a big deal. But now what you need to do is you have to put in bookmarks, right? So, so you've got your package, your argument, your documents that you're filing. Well, they want everything bookmarked. Why? Why do they want bookmarked, Tyler? Well, hopefully so that the judge is going to be able to flip through it easier. Yeah. Find the thing. Because God forbid for. you got to flip through 50 pages to find the tax return from 2019. They already have page numbers required, right? Yes. 
So you explain to me if I've got from one to 90 even, that's a big document, pages one to 90, why I need bookmarks on that document. If I, yeah, I've been in court. Right? I've been because in court. You've got, got a table of contents because that's required too. Table of contents says uh, the 2019 tax return is at page 39. Excuse me, my lord. Page 39 would be the table of the tax return. No, 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 Mr. Harvey, you need to have a bookmark. So I don't have to scroll to that number so I can just highlight the next bookmark. Who's that benefiting? Is benefiting somebody making $300,000 a year at the expense of a client that can't afford justice as it is. And so anyway, this is me, not Tyler. So if a justice is gonna shit on somebody, shit on me. I have to me why you need bookmarks. We wanna see people flipping to that. It's a tab one, it's a tab eight. So I've been there and I've seen that to find, yeah. It, and it is slightly more efficient, but there's a cost to it. This isn't free. This doesn't yeah. just happen. There's no magic elf that shows up and puts bookmarks and tabs on all your filed documents. This is a cost to the client that the law firm has to provide. And legal yeah. fees are already exorbitant. And so many people can't afford lawyers already. Well, let's just add another layer of service that we require so things are a little bit easier for the judiciary. Sorry, they're not the people we should be worried about. It's a client. And, it, and it's, you know what? It's no skin off my ass, right? Because whether I'm going to charge a paralegal to do that or some of that I'm going to do, I'm going to charge the client for that. Yeah. Right? So, okay. It's just another source of income for me. Yeah. Um, and it's just another mm -hmm. thing that drives clients uh, to be self-reps, which I know the judges don't like. Yeah. Right? Well, then make things simpler and more straightforward. No, we do the opposite. We create more and more technical uh, requirements for forms and, and so forth. And it makes things more expensive. So this is the administration of justice costs. Um, and there are many things like that. Things that are complex when they don't need to be, right? Um, so. Now, the third driver, because we've kind of blamed clients a little bit, and I've kind of gone on a rant about, about the system, if we can call yeah. it that. Um, but you know what? Lawyers drive costs. Yeah. Right? Now, what are some of your experiences in ways that lawyers end up charging their clients way more than they should, unreasonably so? Now, this is one that I, this is the point that I think is, to me, really interesting. Uh, lawyers operate in this really old fashioned way, right? They get on this hamster wheel that they've been on since they became a lawyer and they're printing documents and they're getting files that are stacked higher and higher and higher. They're not organized. They're trying to rely on two, three, four assistants. Um, a lot of lawyers, you know, want a big fancy office. They want whatever they want. They get this old mentality and I am calling them out. We need to be done with that electronic files. Don't send me a letter. Don't fax me something. I have an email address. I get that very easily. I can easily save documents electronically. You can transfer a file on a USB drive. You don't need to bring me a wheelbarrow full of crap. Uh, so that's one that I'm pretty passionate about is let's stop driving client costs by being old fashioned and disorganized and not using technology. You know, enough is enough. That one gets me. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I have a couple lawyers that will remain nameless. They email me letters. Oh, I hate this. that. Yeah, you're this. kidding me. Find attached. And then there's a letter that they have printed out and scanned and attached to an email. Yeah. And they email that to you. And I've talked to those lawyers and I've said, why don't you just email me? Well, it's because they dictate everything to an assistant. Yeah. They pay $5,200,000 a year for it. Um, and the assistant then turns it into a letter and prints it out. And, and the lawyer yeah, marks on it. Yeah, right. With a pen. Now, most of those lawyers now have stopped sending me the letters for the most part, because that was the really hilarious when they send you the email and then the letter follows it in an <laughs> envelope with a stamp on it. It's like, holy shit, right? And our old office did that. I remember, you know, my, our former office trying to talk to my partners and saying, emails are, you know, or letters are the biggest waste of time for a law office and the biggest unnecessary expense. Um, and that's part of the overhead. How many assistants yeah. do you need? Well, part of it is because they're printing letters and putting them in envelopes every day. And doing, so, even doing dictation is a little old fashioned. Now, some people, I won't shit on you for that, but I mean, it's a little old fashioned. Yeah, like I used to dictate more than you. I haven't dictated anything in a year. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I have dictated. I feel silly doing it. Yeah, I can type. So yeah, so lawyers that refuse to um, modernize their practice to improve yeah. their efficiencies. Now we've talked about their actual like physical operations, but on top of that, I think that there's lawyers out there, and I had one, and I hope he listens to this who has, has made some pretty negative references about the fact that I look at these sort of uh, what we now call alternative dispute resolutions, which I think should just be called dispute resolutions, and saying, litigate, man, aren't you, aren't you tough? Can't you litigate? Uh, and you know what? That drive client, that'll drive client costs too. If you can't be imaginative, think outside the box, mediate, uh, become interest-based instead of positionally, positionally based, uh, you're driving up your client's costs. Um, and my clients costs too. So, yeah. um, you know, I'd like to call that out as well. Let's, uh, let's work together a little bit more because a lot of the time these, uh, the parties are adversarial. I get that, but they share common problems, uh, and there's better solutions than always litigating. And I'm happy to litigate. I make good money doing it. Um, and it's kind of fun, but a lot of the time it's not the best way to resolve things. And yeah. it certainly isn't always the cheapest. Yeah, my day, when I graduated law school, we basically had no time training uh, in negotiation, let alone dispute resolution. Mm. Mediation was almost unheard of when I graduated in 85. There was no collaborative law. You know, there, there was none of this. But even when you went to law school, which wasn't that long ago, how much time did you spend on, on what I would call effective resolution? We call it negotiation or what's been known as ADR, alternate speed yeah. resolution, compared to preparing you for the litigation world? Oh, maybe one or 2% of law school was that. We have two one yeah. week long block courses that yeah. deal with that. And the rest of it is, here's rules of court. Here's uh, the legislation, which doesn't talk about anything except how do you go to court? Here's the court yeah. forms. That's, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so 90, 90, 95% of what we're trained to do is litigate. Totally. Yeah. Right. And, and, and then you wonder why, when, uh, when all these people get out of law school, their focus tends to be litigation. Right. 
Now I like litigating. I litigate, you litigate. Uh, something like enjoyable it. about being in court. It's, yeah. it's a rush, but you're right. Um, and it's interesting when I was working with the uh, uh, Reforming Family Justice Group a while ago, one of the things I suggested is, why don't we create a high level mediation training program that's like university level, high quality yeah. uh, research and implementation of effective mediation, couldn't get any support for it, none, oh. right? Um, no, we're just gonna keep training people how to fight. Yeah. We don't wanna train people to resolve. And here's the other irony that we all know, um, even a hard litigator, and you and I are fairly aggressive litigators, I think it'd be fair to say, What's the percentage of your files that ever go to trial? Oh, I don't know, two or three, maybe. I don't know, percent. Right? Five percent. I don't know, five percent might be the top. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's less than ninety-five percent. There, it's less than ninety-five percent are going to go to trial. So what that means is you're going to negotiate resolution ninety-five percent of the time anyway. But the training oh. that we get in law school, in particular is exactly the opposite. We're gonna train you 95% of the time to go to trial, even though 95% of your resolution is not gonna be trial resolution, it's gonna be yeah. a negotiation. But nobody is yeah. trained how to effectively and efficiently negotiate. Uh, we're trained how to fight with each other. So let's put that out to the law firms. Please invest in your staff, invest in the lawyers to get them good at the other side of that. Yeah. But then this gets back. Swing back to the client, yeah. right? How often do you tell a client this is the range of outcomes and you can't get them to get their mind around that range of outcomes until they've spent 50 or $60,000 and you're getting closer to trial and now they're at risk of not having their wishes fulfilled and they end up settling right in that range of outcomes that you explained to them two years earlier. Like, is, do you have that experience? That is the experience, that's what happens. Right? That is, yeah. And so, yeah, while we have all these problems with lawyers, you know, being litigious and, and lack, lacking in efficiency, and we have courts that are cumbersome and doing things the way they did 400 years ago, um, we have clients that aren't ready to resolve without going through a lot of pain and expense. Yeah. And I'm not sure how we get around that because you push your client too hard at the front end, you risk getting resolution, not because they want it, but because you want it, which isn't the way to go. It no. has to be their decision. Yeah. But so often you end up back where you started. I give the advice, man. I give the advice about what the law is and what the reasonable outcomes would be. I give the advice on what procedure should look like and the best way to go about getting to resolution. And I let the clients make the decision. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess you're right. Like you can push a client kind of into one method or another or towards one solution over another or one end over another. And I try not to. I try to let, let them be autonomous. You get to make the call. Here's Here's the range, here's the likelihood, the possibilities, here's what I think is in your best interest. You tell me what you wanna do and I'll go do it. And if it's against my advice, if, if I tell you, let's settle, if I tell you, let's go to mediation or whatever, and you say, no, I want you to go to court, man, I'm gonna fight for you. I will do a heck of a job, I, I'll do as best I can. Um, but I, I like to leave that up to the client to decide. Yeah. And they, yeah.
Not along other- with that, I try to encourage mental health uh, yeah. experts to be involved, right? And so clients yeah. hopefully have that clarity and ability. But. And I think that's important. I try to encourage all my clients to get counseling right out of the gate. And what I say is I need you to be your best self yeah. to make the best decisions you can because they're important and making bad decisions can cost you money. Uh, but then the flip side is, and you've dealt with this, we all do as family lawyers, you can be as reasonable as the day is long and encourage alternate dispute resolution. And your client could be abundantly reasonable mm-hmm. and either the lawyer and or the client on the other side are just like idiots. So is that a separate segment of what can drive legal costs up the, the other side's behavior? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and, and without being too modest, I mean, um, you know, I think we all can suffer from a lack of objectivity about the oh, yeah. perfection of our client compared to the other side. Yeah. And I think it bears, you know, comment for each of us, including you and me, to say to ourselves, am I allowing an unreasonable client to, you know, circumvent what should be a reasonable resolution? Mm. Um, now, sometimes, yeah, my client's a problem, but what are you supposed to do with that, right? Um, you know, in extreme cases, I'll quit. Yeah. I'll say to a client, you know what? I, I can't continue acting for you. I, I can't get what I consider to be reasonable instructions. And this isn't working for me or you. Um, I've done that a couple of times. Um, you know, but sometimes you just got to tell the client the risks of, of being what you consider to be unreasonable. Yeah. Allow them to create their own train wreck. That's right. They get to make their own decisions. And you give them good advice. They get to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure there's lawyers out there who have thought, why is Tyler taking that position? Well, it's not Tyler's position to take. No. Uh, you know, I just do what my job is. But, uh, but I think even in that case, you can, uh, um, you can make it clear to the lawyer without selling out your client, without, you know, the, oh, my client's just being an idiot. Um, you can make it clear to the other lawyer, this is not a personal issue. I'm not insulting your client or you. I'm telling you that this is our position and this is what resolution would require. And if we can't get there, then we need to get this in front of a judge. Mm -hmm. And that is a way to assert your client's interests, even when they're being unreasonable, um, but not making it personal with the other lawyer. And, And that's one of my frustrations. And that's the, that, you know, is when I can tell is, is the lawyer the problem or is their client the problem? And quite often it's either or both, mm-hmm. but you know the lawyer's the problem when it becomes very personal. Yes. When they start sending you letters with all capital letters, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you've experienced mm-hmm. recently, um, when they're yelling at you on the phone, um, when they're swearing about your client, um, you're like, okay, well, I get you don't agree with me and my client, but this isn't your problem. This is your client's problem and you're not, you're treading on the edge of professionalism here. Right, right. Um, and yeah, I have yeah. to acknowledge in my early practice, probably five years, maybe even 10 years in, that was me. I was, I was the guy yelling at people in the courthouse hallway. Oh, geez. Um, uh, there was a course on civility I went to where one of my letters was quoted um, because I referred to Scott Stenbeck as a beef-witted footlicker. And he knows this and he laughs at this now. So that's why I can name him. And Scott's a good lawyer. Yeah. So, you know, but there was a frustration and I, and it was becoming personal with me and I had to learn to be a more effective lawyer uh, that my clients needed my objectivity more than my passion. And that's hard for clients sometimes to understand. 
yeah. is, um, you know, when you have a doctor operating on you, you want them to be clear and objective about what they need to do, not passionate about, you know, what they're doing, unfortunately, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So, you know, and that's kind of, those are some of the major issues. Are there things we haven't talked about, things that you think drive costs? No, I really think that that, uh, I think that kind of summarizes, summarizes it. The one thing I was going to ask you, though, is what's the difference, and I have my own theory, but what's the difference between U.S. lawyers and Canadian lawyers? So I see in the U.S., you know, and considering the exchange rate, I get that. But I see in the U.S., there'll be, you know, 10, 15-year lawyers who are charged 150, 200 bucks an hour in certain places. Uh, what's the difference? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, my, I think there's a few issues. One is competition. Yeah. There's a billion lawyers in the United States. A little bit of supply and demand. Is I mean, you know, schools. I don't know how many law schools. I'm sure there's 200 law schools in the United States. Oh, in yeah. Canada, there's not 20, I don't think. No. Right? Yeah. Now, their population is 10 times our population. Right. Um, but I think there's competition on a different level. Yeah. Um, I think their system, uh, you know, I haven't experienced it directly, but near as I can tell, talking to Cam, who used to be a lawyer in Virginia, our former partner or associate, um, there's, there is a greater efficiency. The courts are much less tolerant of people not being ready to roll on the day they need to roll. Right. Okay. And so, uh, according to what Cam advises me, if you're set for a hearing on Tuesday, you better be ready to go Tuesday. And if you're not, they're going ahead anyway. Good. And if you're not ready, then it's up to your clients going to have to sue you because the system does not react to, um, fairness at the expense of efficiency. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so part of the issue is things happen quicker and faster uh, from what I can understand in the U S than perhaps in Canada. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that might be part of it. Yeah. Uh, I think they have some of the same issues, but you know, I mean, they've got a lower tax rate by and large. Mm. Um, True. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about the regulatory obligations in terms of, I mean, the trust accounting obligations we deal with the law society now. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're quite onerous in, in the time it takes to report and comply with the requirements of the law society. I don't think those obligations are as significant in the United States. Um, and I think people just make less money, right? I mean, a school teacher, it's not unusual for a school teacher in Alberta to make $100,000 a year. It's right. not unusual for a school teacher in the United States to make $35,000 a year. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I think, you know, these things carry through. People working for other people in the United States tend to make less money. Yeah. People working for themselves in the United States tend to make more money. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of maybe part of their experience. I don't know. I, I mean, they have access to justice problems True, like the yeah, rest of us. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think they're much more innovative from you know mm -hmm. working with the access to justice continuum. Some of the things I've seen in the United States, um, much more uh, innovative and experimental in terms of trying different approaches than in yeah. Canada. Um, uh, you know, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Those are, I've never really looked at it in depth, but those are some. Yeah. No, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, definitely, you know, I've, I've dealt with lawyers down in Montana that's 
you know, yep. 150 miles from here. Um, and I get bills from them that I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, something that that we would bill somebody $2,000 for, I'll get a six, $700 bill. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. And that, those are the things I had in mind. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, you know, we speak of what we experience, you know, I think we could do things much more efficiently. I don't think it was very unusual to do a week long trial 20 years ago. Yeah. Now it's the norm. Right. Um, Why? You know, I did a summary trial a couple years ago. It was interesting because I think, you know, I was committed that it didn't need a bunch of witnesses. It was essentially primarily a legal argument buttressed by our clients explaining where they were at. We one one witness each. It basically ended up being a two day trial. Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of the day, my clients all pissed off because it didn't turn out to his desired result and mm-hmm. and then you're in this well you know why do we do the summary trial and right you know in in, in retrospect it's like it, it was as good a result as we were going to get it probably yeah. saved him 20 or thirty thousand dollars in legal fees yeah as opposed to doing a week or a week and a half long trial but when i look back on it there's a part of me that goes i should have just done the eight-day trial because i would have made more money and had less risk now as it turned out nothing came of it but clearly one of the things he complained about was you know what what was this bullshit summary trial thing we did right Right? yeah um so but if the courts said no 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 no. you don't get five days you get three days and who are your witnesses going to be yeah no we don't need to hear 15 witnesses you right know, from your client's siblings saying what a great mother she is you yeah, know yeah. one or two right um you know that kind of thing and, and if lawyers were less you know well i want to call aunt betsy because there was that one time that she saw you know the kid's father swear at him and call him a little bastard okay yeah. let's put her on the stand to give basically pointless evidence right that adds nothing to the larger picture let's do that yeah. Right. And that's on us again as lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. Are we really putting the evidence that the judges need to make the best decision? Or, you know, are we over delivering because it's safer? That's my biggest concern. Yeah. I think we over deliver legal service because it's better for us, not better for the client. And the law society and the courts just don't want to grapple with that mm-hmm. because the choice then is, well, do we allow lawyers to do a half-assed job when they feel like it? Do we allow lawyers to get instructions from clients that effectively go, um, you know, if you don't want to spend $50,000, sign here so I can do a mediocre job, right? That's what they're afraid of, so I understand it. Which is clearly not what we want. No, but I think, clients, I think clients should be able to, um, on some level, delineate the level of service they want right yeah i've advised the client that i probably could do five hours of research on this file and i may not know all the law applicable um you know that i could do one hour research to get a basic update on the law yeah and allow the client to take that risk yeah you know but hindsight's 2020 
Yeah. And whenever something doesn't go well, you've got a client and probably a judge who's going to look at you and say, well, didn't you just buy a bunch of insurance for $3,000 a year? <laughs> Why don't we just have your insurance company pay for the client's misfortune? Okay, well then what's going to happen is I'll just start doing five hours of research. That's right. Every application. Yeah. 2,500 bucks research alone, right? So your interim court applications are going to be five, $6,000. Yeah. Way saver for me. Client yeah. need it? Probably not. So it's a problem, but you know, I guess we're getting to about our hour. This, this is, oh, geez. yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is kind of a discussion of, so the clients can kind of get some insight as to why everything's so damned expensive. Well, and we're just touching on the tip of it. Right? Yeah. yeah. You could write a book on why lawyers are so expensive and what ways they could be less expensive, but, I think this has been a reasonable sort of discussion. I'm probably going to good start. Get some feedback, maybe. Yeah. A little <laughs> harsh. Well, hopefully, the harsh isn't uh, directed at me too much. No, send your hate mail or throw your daggers at me when I show up in court in two weeks. I'll take what I deserve, but <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, if you're too harsh, I'll be back here. <laughs> That leads us to next week's discussion. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. The importance of myth in the justice system. That will be good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can we'll talk uh, about that. You can think about that. So, um, any plans for this weekend? I guess you're going to have a baby. I don't baby. know if that'll happen this weekend. Yeah, it could be this weekend, it could be in a week. I don't think it would be as long as two weeks. And everyone's all excited about this. and. Yeah, my son, he seems to have an idea. Like we tell him there'll be a baby and the baby's going to come home. But I, I, don't know if he, I don't know if he quite gets it. But you've got a room that's all, you know, yeah. set for your, your new child. The nursery is all set up. And uh, everyone, he has some understanding that this room is for this human being that's going to come stay with us? No, I don't think he does. I mean, I say, look, we're going to put, put this baby in the crib and the, and the baby will sleep there and we can hug her and love her and you can show her toys and... I don't think, I don't know that he gets it. But well, that'll be exciting. It will be very exciting. That's, That's good. Yeah. I'm not having a baby this weekend. Hey, we'll drink to that. Well, neither, neither is my wife. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Again, uh, I don't know what we'll do. Hang out, golf a little maybe, do some yard work. Good. Yeah, good, good. Um, maybe play a little more Call of Duty. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't run into anybody from our podcast on Call of Duty yet. Well, keep, just wait. People will find you there, I'm sure. Yeah. Sergeant yeah. Brock, two hours. I'm sure people will find you. I swear quite a bit when I play that game, which I shouldn't. My son gave me shit last night. Dad, stop swearing. Yes, you're right. Okay, well, yeah, don't coming. swear. Don't See, when I used to play Call of Duty, I played it on a Nintendo Wii. And so I was playing with 10-year-old kids, so I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't swear. Yeah, my experience is the average age probably is 21 years old. Yeah, well, say what you want then. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's gonna get my work frustrations out. I shoot. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we'll sign off and say goodbye Cheers to everybody, next week. have a good weekend, yeah.